0: The creation versus evolution argument is not about faith versus science, neither can be proven or falsified by the scientific method, and in fact, both sides are looking at the same forensic evidence. The real question then is, which view is accurate? We're the Missouri Association for Creation, welcome to our podcast. Hello from St. Louis, Missouri, I'm Marv Schaefer, President of the Missouri Association for Creation. I'm here with fellow MAC board member, Zach Klein, who will be interviewing today's guest, Dr. Marcus Ross. But before we do that, let me take a brief minute to tell you about the Missouri Association for Creation. We've been defending biblical creation since our inception in 1972. Our primary function is to serve as an educational resource on the topic of origins. Our mission is to promote special creation by God as the best, most reasonable, and true explanation of the origin of life and the world in which we live, and to equip those who are like-minded to be able to defend their beliefs through a careful examination of available scientific evidence, fundamental laws of nature, and the evidence from Scripture. Our monthly meetings are ongoing on the second Monday of the month. And the MAC Speakers Bureau is available to churches, homeschool groups, and schools for presentations defending all aspects of biblical creation. Please visit our website, mocreation.org, M-O-creation, to learn more about our history, our core beliefs, and our mission. You can click on the Host an Event tab to find out how we can serve you. If you'd like to be notified when a creation event is happening in our area, please contact us through the website And let us know that you'd like to be added to our email list. Again, that's mocreation.org. Zach, you've spearheaded this podcast effort for Mac. What are our goals for this podcast? Well, thank you, Marv. I think uh, our goals
1: really with the podcast, besides just letting folks know what we at uh, Mac are doing uh, here in the St. Louis, Missouri area, um, and certainly we want to be able to uh, be able to come alongside local churches, Christian schools, other institutions, and provide presentations, provide field trips and other information, um, especially for our, our local St. Louis region. And we also just want to have another avenue for providing folks with information uh, about the creation evolution debate, the evidence for the Bible's reliability, and why this entire subject is so important. You know, Why is there a Missouri Association for Creation and why we've been doing this uh, for all these years? So, yeah, this is just a a great avenue to get our message out, to let folks know what we're doing, and hopefully to communicate uh, the importance of it all.
0: Awesome. Well, today's topic is, why does creation matter? Uh, Dr. John MacArthur, in his book, The Battle for the Beginning, has this quote. He says, everything scripture says about our salvation through Jesus Christ hinges on the literal truth of what Genesis chapter 1 through 3 teaches about Adam's creation and fall, There is no more pivotal passage of Scripture. So as Christians, we recognize that this is a spiritual battle. And Dr. MacArthur's pointing out that the creation account in the book of Genesis is not just a creation story. It's not poetry. It's an actual recounting of history. You know, Paul refers to Jesus as the second Adam. You can't have a second Adam without a first Adam. Jesus' entire mission is predicated on what happened in the garden.
1: Absolutely. And as you said, it's an accurate account of history. Christianity, we know, is a historical faith. Uh, Jesus lived, died, rose again in history. And without that, as Paul tells us, our faith is, is nothing, right? And so... What we realize as creationists and here at Mac is that that history doesn't begin with the Gospels. It goes all the way back to Genesis. That tells us the why that Jesus had to come and live and die and it's rise. It's the again. foundation, right? Absolutely, it is the foundation. And so, while it's true, none of us here at Mac would say that you know you have to believe in a literal creation or a young Earth to be saved. It's not part of the gospel that we preach in the sense of the gospel all about what Jesus did. It's not about your theology and it's not about you know what necessarily what you believe about history. But what you believe about history, just like what you believe about theology, is going to affect who Jesus is and why he came and what he did. These are not just peripheral issues. Um, you can be saved without understanding the history in Genesis. But if you know the history in Genesis and you reject it, you are whether you realize it or not, you are undermining the message and really the consistency, the integrity of the
0: gospel. Yeah, there's a lot of doctrine that comes out of the uh, creation account. Absolutely. And we'll be expanding on that in future podcasts. Absolutely. But uh, as we said, it is uh, absolutely foundational. In John chapter five, Jesus says this, for if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, How will you believe my own words? So Jesus says, believe Moses. Of course, Moses wrote the Pentateuch. In John chapter 3, Jesus says, if I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things?
1: And you know, it's fascinating too, because, and maybe we'll talk about this in, in a future episode, but there are those who, in order to hold to an old earth evolutionary type of mindset, they will argue that, well, maybe Jesus was mistaken in some way. Maybe because he was incarnate as a human, he kind of inherited the the other beliefs that humans had, you know, that the Jews would have had in his time. And they're really – now now we're talking about who Jesus is. Like, that's this is This is not a peripheral issue anymore, right? Right. And so that's what I think is so important for folks to grasp and what we'll talk about uh, through the course of this episode is this is not just a matter of dates and and numbers. This is a matter of history and a matter of, does the gospel message actually work? Does it make sense in light of that history?
0: Absolutely. Well, as we mentioned earlier, the topic today is, why does creation matter? And we're really excited to introduce our first podcast guest and a friend of Mac, who will dig deeper into today's subject matter. Zach, tell us about Dr. Ross.
1: Yeah. So Dr. Marcus Ross is a paleontologist, and he got his start uh, studying dinosaur fossils, actually studying mosasaur uh, fossils, I believe, uh, for his PhD work. And so uh, he's uh, been active in creation circles for a long, long time, both as a researcher, writing papers, doing actual work uh, in uh, creation research, uh, as well as teaching. Uh, He was a professor at Liberty University and uh, was director of their Center for Creation Studies uh, for many years, uh, he's now retired from full-time teaching, and he'll share more with us about uh, his current venture, uh, what he and his family are working on today. So, uh, and he's also been, more so than most, uh, very involved in talking with theologians and folks that are not in the science world, but that have nonetheless uh, an interest or that are affected by this whole debate. Um, and so we're really excited to talk with him on this topic, and we'll hear from him again in episode two as well. So yeah, with no further ado, I think we can go ahead and and get into the interview with uh, Dr. Ross.
0: Okay, rock and roll, Zach.
1: Welcome, Dr. Marcus Ross. It's great to have you on the podcast with us. Thank you for joining. Wonderful to be here. Thank you, Zach. Yeah, absolutely. You want to give us a brief introduction? How are things going? What you've been up to?
2: Well, thanks. Things with Cornerstone are moving along. Our company produces educational science materials, and I have been Doing this as a full-time job now for a little over a year, about a year and a half, after spending 16 years in the classroom teaching at Liberty University as a professor of geology and director of the Center for Creation Studies. So past year and a half has been a real big switch up for our family, moving out from the academic side to the academic support side. And in the midst of that, God's opened up a lot of opportunities to continue engaging in creation issues with more and more folks in theology, which has been really fun and interesting. My sister is a theologian and Old Testament scholar, and she just continues to introduce me to more and more folks on her side of this discussion about creation and evolution. And that's been really refreshing and interesting to hear from others, the sorts of questions and issues that they have, which gets me out of sometimes bit of the bubble that we have within, say, young earth creationism or on the sciencey side of creation evolution issues as well. So it's been a real rounding experience for me over the past little while here. Yeah, that's fantastic. I mean,
1: that really plays right into the topic that we're discussing in our inaugural episode here at our Missouri Association for Creation podcast. And our first topic really is just that, why does creation matter? For those of us that have been involved in maybe creation apologetics or you with creation research and teaching, We might take that for granted. We kind of live and breathe this stuff. But for a lot of Christians, that's not their experience. This is not maybe something they think about all that often. So I'd just like to get your perspective. Why does the creation and evolution debate matter to Christians? Why does the church need to be aware of this issue, engaged on this issue, Obviously, this might be a little bit self-serving, but why does what we do matter? (laughs) What are your thoughts on that? Why should we have a podcast that's dedicated to this sort of thing? Why should people be listening to it?
2: Exactly. And ministries and museums and so forth. What's the big deal? Well, it's interesting because a lot of times outside of especially the circles that we run in where this debate is kind of full to the fore and it's what we think about a lot, a lot of Christians will say, you know, this isn't a salvation issue. And I agree with that, right? Of course, one can be a believer in Jesus Christ and believe a lot of other sorts of things that are in or out of the Bible and still be secure in their salvation. Praise the Lord. There isn't a theology test to get through the gates of heaven, right? It's by faith through grace alone. But even though there is that tendency to kind of pull and say, well, maybe we don't have to fight so much about this. Maybe this isn't such a big deal. It's not a big argument. It's not a salvation issue. The thing that I come back to is that our views on the beginnings of things, Ultimately, affect our views on why we're in the situation that we're in and why the sacrifice and atonement of Jesus Christ becomes necessary, and why we have justification for believing that he will return once again to set the world straight. It's in these first few chapters of Genesis that we see scripture lay out its key themes that will develop what is often referred to as the meta narrative of scripture. Briefly for our listeners, the meta narrative, right, the overarching storyline of scripture is that we have a creation that was made by God that was good. And we, being part of that creation made in his image, we fell and brought death into the world. That death needs to be atoned for and ultimately is atoned for through Jesus Christ. So we have creation, we have fall, but then we have redemption through Jesus and ultimate restoration of all things. That is the grand storyline of the Bible. And most of the rationale for why we need all this begins in Genesis 1, 2, 3, etc. And so while this isn't something that is required for you to think one way or the other in order to be a believer in Jesus Christ, it is something that helps to anchor why we needed Jesus Christ to come and die for our sins and provide a means of saving not only humanity, but redeeming the entire world along with it, because it is our fallenness that has corrupted this entire realm. That's one of the reasons why I am really passionate about this, is because when I look at Genesis 1, 2, 3, and the chapters afterwards, I see those initial beginnings of creation. We see the fall and the desperate need then for some type of Redemption. And early in the passages of Genesis, we don't know what that's going to look like, right? God hasn't fully revealed that. But He did make that initial promise in the curse on the serpent. He promised that there would be a seed of the woman that would eventually crush the serpent's head. We see that fulfilled later in the New Testament. A couple of other real quick things is I also find that these perspectives that we take to one degree or another will challenge us to remain internally consistent with the Bible. And with its own interpretations, when we get out of Genesis, what do we see with other passages that look back into it? And we want to maintain consistency there like the other authors and the other individuals in the Bible. And that's because we also want to hold a consistent interpretive method. And I believe that in particular, young earth creationist view is capable of doing that while others don't. And once we've got those kind of nailed down, we see why deviations from a young earth creation perspective ultimately can have big implications in our theology downstream, often in places we didn't expect about the nature of God, about the capacity of the goodness or the fallenness of our creation. What does sin mean? What does death mean? These sorts of things that ultimately tie into that meta narrative are right there at the beginning. So, this is, I think, a crucial area for Christians to consider once salvation has been grasped, once salvation has been received, then it's time to start thinking through these issues. Yeah, as you're speaking, you know, I'm thinking that a lot of these
1: topics you're bringing up, you're not talking about rocks and fossils. You're not talking about dating methods. You're talking about issues of the human condition, of the cross, of redemption, of the return of the Lord, the return of Christ. These are things that all Christians care about. These are matters of great importance, not that there isn't some disagreement among believers about some specifics around some of those doctrines, but at their core, that is Christianity. We know we can't mess with that. But in so many situations, it seems that a lot of folks will look at the creation and evolution debate and they'll ask a question like, well, why does the age of the earth matter? The Bible doesn't give us, well, we can argue that it does, but it doesn't literally give us calendar dates to set when... The earth was created, right? And I think you see that especially in even some more conservative segments of the church where there's a sense that if we could just table this discussion, and we'll talk more about the science aspect in a moment, but why isn't this a situation where, you know, we don't, Christians, we don't get all uptight about necessarily specifics in astronomy or Einstein's theory of relativity. They don't seem like they intersect and make a big difference in how we look at the world as Christians. So why would something, again, going back to my earlier example, the age of the earth, why is that important? If the Bible really doesn't give us the exact date, you know, isn't this an area where we just have Christian charity and people can have different takes, different interpretations, and some of us just don't need to think about it. Why does the age of the earth keep coming up and becoming such a hot topic in this discussion?
2: This definitely relates to those first few themes that I was talking about here, right? Basically, we have a question, is scripture Actually, communicating clearly to us. One of the important aspects of Reformation theology was an affirmation of what they called the perspicuity of Scripture, the ultimate understandability of Scripture. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't hard parts to Scripture, that there aren't mysteries and difficulties, but it does mean that Scripture does communicate, especially in matters of salvation, tremendously clearly. And there are other parts of Scripture that are also quite clear. And looking back through the history of interpretation of Genesis, not because it's authoritative, but because it's instructive for us, what we find is that there were no individuals who questioned the ultimate youth of the age of the earth really until we got to the 1700s, maybe the latest 1600s or so. You start seeing people really on the periphery of Christianity starting to ask questions about that, and then it starts to bleed its way into more orthodox realms of Christianity later on. So I think the genealogies that we see in Genesis 5 and Genesis 11, while there seems to be some structuring of those genealogies going on, there's a fairly nice mirroring between 10 on the first end and 9 or 10 on the second. We've got some questions about whether there's 9 or 10 different translations The Septuagint and the Hebrew give us different numbers there. But nonetheless, it does seem that the flood account acts as a hinge point with genealogies on either side that are structured in such a way to let us know that there is a finite amount of time between, say, Abram going back to Noah and then going back to Adam. And whether we peg that at 6,000 years ago, if we follow Usher's chronology at 4004 BC, or whether we allow for a little bit more play in the genealogies and think, well, maybe there's some missing time. There's arguments back and forth on this sort of thing. But nonetheless, looking back through the historical interpretation of the church, everybody thought that the earth was young. And it wasn't until there were external pressures that started coming from places like astronomy and geology, especially in the late 17 and early 1800s, that caused a shift in the way that people thought about it. So that's one of the things that we can think about as Christians here is. If it wasn't for the externalities, we probably wouldn't be asking this question at all. We'd still be in a perspective where we thought the earth was young. So the externalities then have to be grappled with because this is the world that God has made. And if we're getting signals from it about the age of the earth that seem to be in conflict in some way with what we're reading with scripture, then we hope to see resolution. right? We hope to see that ultimately there is a unity between God's spoken word and God's spoken world. But we also know that because there is a fall, our ability to understand that world, just as our ability to understand and comprehend God, has been severely curtailed in certain ways. So we get a signal from nature, but we may or may not be able to interpret it quite properly due to what theologians call the noetic effects of the fall, these issues that affect our capacities in some way. I think those are some of the reasons why it's important. Is scripture communicating clearly to us? I think that it is. And I think that our long history of interpretation points us in that direction. So now how do we approach the issues in science to see if we can't get some resolution?
1: It's interesting that I think Christians have a, for the most part, we have a pretty easy time grasping the importance of history when it comes to, obviously, the work of Christ, right? That he was a real person, that he came and that he lived and did the things that the scripture says he did, that he died, as the gospels tell us, and that he rose again, And so we have a real sense, I think, that our faith is historic, but sometimes maybe we don't realize that that history didn't begin with Matthew, and it doesn't begin with the Israelite monarchies and so forth. That story, as you said in the earlier part of our conversation, it begins with the creation. It begins in Genesis, and there's only so much wiggle room in that history. And so, as you were saying, not all young earth creationists even agree on exactly when the creation took place. 4004 BC, you can get that through Usher's chronology following the Masoretic text, the Hebrew Bible. There are other ways, other translations of the Old Testament that would give us a slightly different date. There is the possibility that some of these genealogies are not entirely linear. There might be some, even in scripture, it might be describing some points where there might be a gap here or there, but you're not going to stretch to... 4.5 4.5 billion. You're not even going to stretch to hundreds of thousands. And so it becomes kind of a, not a, at all a meaningless discussion, but it's not actually the discussion that we're having. When we say young earth creationism, we really are referencing its young relative to the conventional mainstream evolutionary account of things, which puts the origin of creation far, far back beyond any possible stretching. <laughs> of
2: the biblical text and the biblical account. Yeah, i had a uh, debate with Hugh Ross back in 2016, and one of the things that I brought up during that debate was Hugh's perspective with reasons to believe is that Adam could have lived, say, 100,000 years ago or perhaps 150,000 years ago with Noah's flood about 50,000 years ago. So what I did is I took the genealogies in Genesis 5 and 11, and I stretched them as necessary If the average age before having a kid is about 130 for everybody in Genesis 5, how many generations are missing to get us Adam to Noah in 100,000 years? And then how many generations are missing to get us from Noah to Abram in about another 50,000 years? The ratios were like 80 to 1 in Genesis 5 as to the number of unnamed individuals versus the 10 names that were 800 to 10. And then on the Genesis 11 genealogies, it got worse because in the Genesis 11 genealogies, the ages before having children compress and get really small, about 30 years old. And so you ended up having over a thousand unnamed individuals that would have to be put in if you put Noah's flood at 50,000 years ago, a thousand to 10, you know, like a hundred to one ratio. There is a point at which those genealogies become nonsensical. And as a young earth creationist, I'm not exactly sure where that line is, but I also don't want to like go out and try and find it. So yeah, you know, one could say, Hey, maybe Adam could live a hundred thousand years ago, but not realize what you end up doing to scripture in order to make that happen. And that can be quite surprising. Once you put it up on a screen with a giant Excel spreadsheet that I had to keep zooming out of to put everything in. At some point you start
1: to wonder, is this really a genealogy? What even is this? This is just a random sampling of names. For no discernible reason, these aren't even, for the most part, famous heroes of the faith that we could tell you any stories about. They're just, like you said, a very small percentage of names just included, I don't know, to test our faith, perhaps, to borrow that old excuse. That's great. Thank you, Marcus. Let's talk briefly about the flood, because that, even though it's not in the name, you know, we see Young Earth Creation, it doesn't necessarily imply anything about a flood, but you mentioned it's a hinge point in the narrative, and it's a major point in young earth creationism. We believe that there was a global worldwide flood, not simply a universal flood that killed everybody in a region, but something that actually affected the entire earth. Again, briefly, why is that important to Christians? Why is that not just something that rock nerds can debate about or that Sunday school stories can be based off of? Why is that story and that piece of the creation model so important.
2: You're absolutely right. I mean, young earth creationism is perhaps known in many ways more for its advocacy of a global flood sometimes than you know the arguments for a youthful age of the earth, although both of those go hand in hand. And yeah, the flood account is a hinge point in the early chapters of Genesis. It brings us from the world that was originally created and went bad into a world after the flood that gets us to Abraham. So we're bookending Adam and Abram and Noah stands in the middle as a righteous individual. It's one of the things like Abram can be counted righteous in part because he descends from righteous Noah. And Noah is written about in the Bible as a way to mirror and to make comparison with Adam. Noah is actually the character that we would have rather had at the beginning than Adam. He is more faithful than Adam was. It's said in the Bible, right? And Noah did everything the Lord said. And what did Adam do? He completely disobeyed the one thing that God said. In an essay that I did for a theological dictionary, I charted out I think it was seven or 10 of the major comparison points between Adam and Noah. He is a crucially important character, even though he actually says nothing in the flood account at all, which is another way that he contrasts with Adam. Adam speaks and makes excuses and Noah never once speaks at all in Genesis six, seven or eight. Not until he actually curses his son, Ham, that we actually have Noah say something in which case he has a curse speech that mirrors God's curse speech on Cain. So, Theologically, Noah is really important there. But then as you get out into the rest of the Old Testament, you don't see anything from Noah. He shows up maybe twice or so, right? In genealogy and in a comparison as well. But it's in the New Testament that we see the flood take on continued importance because it is used by Jesus and by Peter in particular as examples of what the world was like when God brought judgment and therefore that we can know that future judgment is going to happen. Peter uses the flood three times in his two short epistles to establish three different theological points that all rely on the flood's historicity and on the flood wiping out all of humanity and being universal judgment for the world. We see this especially in 2 Peter 3, where he contrasts the creation, the flood, and Jesus's second coming, which are all events that involve the entirety of the created world. So when you have something like that, then it turns out that mucking around with the flood in Genesis and saying, well, maybe it was just a local flood or maybe it's a theological flood. Maybe it was a small event that was turned into this theological point. That's not how Jesus reads it. And that's not how Peter reads it. It's not how the author of Hebrews reads it when he commends Noah for his faith. So that's part of what I was saying at the beginning. We want internal consistency. With our scripture because we believe in the inspiration of the entire bible through the holy spirit right we know that individual people are involved and they have their voices here as well but the voice of the spirit is the one that is unifying the text so that we have a complete or at least a pretty whole picture of everything god wants us to know about him and what he's doing so when it comes to the science then it's going to be up to us as creation geologists and paleontologists To see, does the scientific evidence comport with the predictions we might have of a worldwide flood? Do we even have an idea of what those scientific predictions would be, since we have no experience with something that cataclysmic, praise God, in the modern world? Yeah, and that really leads to my next question.
1: So if I could just take a step back and just kind of summarize the sequence of events that you and I are both describing, I think we're all on the same page here. We believe that the creation of the earth and in fact, all of the universe would have taken place probably within the six to 10,000 year window, so very young compared to the secular account of things, let's say 6,000 years ago, that there were six solar days over which that creation took place. It's a very clear reading of the text and that the creation was very good prior to man's disobedience at the fall, Adam and Eve disobeyed God in the garden. There's the fall, the curse on creation. That's then followed by the flood, as you were just speaking of. And then we know from Genesis 9 through 11, there's the dispersion of all the nations at Babel. And that kind of, I think, covers the big biblical milestones that most of us as creationists are interested in, is really that creation through to Babel time frame, Genesis 1 to 11. Now, you just brought up paleontology, which is your field. You study rocks and fossils, and that's the sort of thing you did in your education, your research, your teaching. So in your field, paleontology and geology, we haven't had a chance to talk much about the specific science. So I want to give you a chance just to speak on something that would be your favorite piece of evidence that you would point to and say, this is something that is consistent with what I would expect given the biblical time frame, given the biblical description of creation and the flood. And maybe something that's a little bit more of an anomaly as far as the conventional interpretation would have it the evolutionary understanding what would be your favorite fossil or rock or bit of evidence that you'd like to share with us
2: gotcha well thanks that's a really good question zach thinking about what is one of the things that surprised me the most about the fossil record over the past several years that when i saw it went oh my goodness of course this would make more sense for us than it would for my old earth counterparts and my evolutionary counterparts and colleagues, the discovery of preserved biomolecules within fossils that are supposed to be 68 to 80 million years old, for example. So the first of these was discovered most famously by Mary Schweitzer and her team of paleontologists working with Jack Horner up on a T-Rex dig site in Montana. And it turned out that in this femur bone, right, the thigh bone, this giant thigh bone of a T-Rex, When it was broken, she once said in an interview that it smelled like rotting meat. That's not what you'd expect in a paleontology lab, is it? That's not. We tell them, throw your old lunch away in the lab when that happens, like, you know, you're killing us here. So it turned out that when she got this thing back to the lab, there was an accident that her TA had done, her research assistant. He was told to soak some samples of the bone in a solution to help demineralize some of it. And he left it overnight and it demineralized all of it. That wasn't supposed to happen. And so he brought the dish back over to Schweitzer and said, I'm sorry, I screwed up, but there's some stuff in here and it looks really odd. And she looked at it and it looked like blood vessels and, you know, weird, original organic material. It didn't dissolve because it's not mineral, it's organic. And she said, do it again. <laughs> you know, Classic experimental science, right? You know. Do it again. She says, if we get the same results, we're going to call Jack Horner and we're going to talk about what this is. So in 2005, they publish that inside this T-Rex femur, they had original biomolecules and organic materials and structures. So they had these blood vessels that you could actually take with tweezers and stretch them and they would snap back into shape. She showed a video of this at the Society of Vertebrate Paleontology meeting in 2005 to audible gasps in the audience, right? paper got published in Science. There was some pushback. People thought, well, maybe it was microbial stuff. It was bacteria that had invaded the bones and coated over where the blood vessels used to be. It was all recent. And Schweitzer is an astonishingly tenacious scientist, and she has been working over the past now 17 years since, showing, first off, that these were actually original to the organism. They've done protein tests to identify proteins that are only found in vertebrate animals and found three different proteins that were only found in vertebrate animals. So no bacteria can make these. So you're able to exclude the bacterial argument, right? And this is now the idea that there's preserved material in bones is so commonly known now that it was part of the new Jurassic world justification for getting dinosaurs in the first Jurassic world movie with Chris Pratt. They mentioned, Oh, we don't need Amber anymore because we can get the DNA from the dinosaurs right from their bones. Well, Schweitzer's team did identify little bits of DNA, but it was kind of like if you took a dictionary and put it through a paper shredder, or even worse, a chipper, and you have little tiny fragments and you could never put the pieces back together again. But there really were pieces and fragments of DNA, and there are intact segments of proteins. The reason that this is important to young earth creationism is that these molecules have known horizons for degradation. And those known horizons for degradation, under the best of laboratory conditions, sitting in a minus 80 freezer, minus 80 degrees Celsius freedom, minus 120 Fahrenheit. That sort of thing still decays, we estimate, in tens of thousands of years. Some of these molecules maybe might have a shelf life that could last a million under the best conditions. But the reality is that the rocks in Montana are not the best of all conditions. And they are preserving things that are supposed to be tens of millions of years old. I never thought that this would have been possible in part because I was trained as conventional paleontologist to think about fossils as complete and total replacement or near complete replacement of bone with mineral, of shell with new mineral. Organic material goes away. We don't get it preserved, except if we're talking about some ice age stuff in permafrost or you know, in a tar pit. Then we can have that sort of exceptional preservation that might get us some tissues. So maybe raising the mammoth is possible. Raising the T-Rex, that's, that's a pipe dream. There's nothing there except there is, and it doesn't make sense in an old earth perspective. It does make sense. However, if these bones are only a few thousands of years, that's still within the preservation window, but it's not if you think the earth is ancient. So when that came out, that's not a silver bullet. That's not saying, therefore, the earth is young. Therefore, Noah's flood happened, but it is a powerful piece of evidence that is exactly within our side of potentials. I won't say expectations because I wasn't expecting it but it's in our realm of potentials, it's in our realm of explanation, and it is not to this point in the realm of full explanation. Schweitzer has been working hard to try to figure out a chemistry that can preserve this stuff. And she has some good proof of concept work, but nothing that is actually applicable in the natural world. So that's one of the things that's had me, you know, the most excited over the past few years. That really is exciting. Jurassic Park coming to life,
1: right? That might not end well. But just for those listening, Schweitzer, to be clear, is an evolutionist. This is not a creation research project. The story you told, it's fascinating. It was virtually an accident. This is not something that a conventionally trained evolutionary scientist or paleontologist would go looking for. And so that's another thing to keep in mind. For all the incredible advancements that are being made in the scientific community in a lot of fields, no one's looking for this kind of thing. Scientists don't look for things that they expect never to find. And so that's another thing to keep in mind that the creation evolution debate sometimes gets portrayed as though we have competing stacks of scientific evidence and competing arguments and people get confused. How do I know who's got the most bestest arguments? Right. And that's really not how science works. It's not how people work. We all look at the world from a particular perspective. We use a certain, say, a worldview or a paradigm that kind of guides our expectations. It guides the kinds of problems and questions we want to ask about the world. As Christians, we have certain beliefs and certain things that we expect that are true about the world, given scripture. And in many ways, a young earth creationist, we're simply extending that back to the early chapters of Genesis and saying, this is going to guide our expectations. We expect to see, as you said, God's world will be ultimately consistent with What is revealed in God's word. And just going back to the topic of our conversation here, that's a good summary of why the creation and evolution debate matters because it's not just a debate about science. As we can see from the example with Schweitzer, revolutions and unexpected things come up in science all the time. Look at the history of science. It's a history of people being surprised and finding things they didn't expect. And that's not something you want to build your faith or your civilization, your system of answering the big questions in life on things that could be overturned through another experiment and another discovery or a new star. The Bible purports to give us a true and accurate account of the origin of the universe, the origin of the earth, and also for why things are the way they are, why we die, why we suffer, all of these things that you were speaking of earlier. And when you start to as you said, monkey with that a little bit, you start to play with that to try to line it up with this competing narrative that's coming from essentially an atheistic or at least a naturalistic perspective. We're really shooting ourselves in the foot. We're undermining in many ways Christianity's strengths in that it can give a cohesive explanation for why we exist, for why creation and why nature can be so exquisitely designed and beautiful in many ways, and so cruel and ugly and pointless in others. That's the heart of the Christian message, right? That God is a good God who made a good creation, and because of our rebellion, things are the way they are, but we have a future hope through the cross, through Christ, that there will be a restoration, as Peter said, of all things ultimately. and. Those are the things that I think matter to all Christians, right? We care about that. And that is rooted in the history that is given to us in Genesis. And this is not just a peripheral issue. It's not a gospel condition, as we understand. That's not the message that saves us. But it does go to the coherency and the consistency of that message. Do you have any closing thoughts as we wrap up this segment? No, I think that's very well put. Thanks. Well, thank you, Dr. Ross, for joining us. You want to tell us a little bit more about what you're doing at Cornerstone Educational Supply? I know you mentioned it in your intro. Where can folks learn more about your offerings and just share
2: a little bit about what's going on with your business? Thanks for that opportunity. You can find us on the web at cornerstone-edsupply.com. That's cornerstone-edsupply.com. Our company produces educational science materials for homeschool, for private and public schools. We work with universities and we also work with publishers. We do a lot of custom kit building materials. So if you've got a homeschool curriculum that you're working on, we may actually provide the stuff. That's what my life likes to say. We're the stuff people. When your curriculum says, go get some things, you need a beaker, you need some owl pellets, you need dissection materials, you need a rock kit. These are the sorts of things that we produce. And uh, we started seven years ago now in 2015 is when we first launched. We started with educational geology kits because I wanted to bring creation-based rock, mineral, and fossil kits to the homeschool, private school, and other Christian environments because there's ways of thinking about geology. And when you get a rock box from just any old place and you lift it up and you look at it and they're talking about millions of years, immediately for some people, they're just not sure what to believe what's true, what's not true. Do they throw all of it away or what? So one of the things that we put in our, all of our geology kits is a biblical geologic timescale that gives you the conventional dates on one side so that you understand what the standard perspective on the age of the earth is. And on the other side, on the right-hand column, you get the same geologic column that is organized according to what rocks were formed during creation week, what rocks were formed during Noah's flood and what rocks were formed after Noah's flood. And, you know, this is a hypothesis about what those are. And the back of our card kind of lays out, how do we think about geological models? How do we hold on to them firmly, but still tentatively when they seem to be working? We want to hold on a little more firm, but recognize that we could still be wrong about when the flood begins or ends or things like that. But nonetheless, show that there is agreement about where the rocks are what the fossils are and what relationship they have to one another. You know, it's frequently said in creationism that we've got the same data as you were talking about before. It's not that we have two different piles of data and the creationist pile or the evolutionist pile is bigger and stronger and better. This is God's world. It's all his data. Every bit of it, everything that we discover, goes into the pile of things that have been discovered that God has hidden and that we have had the opportunity to discover. So, The world out there, its geology is structured in a particular way, and our models for creationism must take into account those physical empirical realities, just as the evolutionary community has to take in those physical empirical realities and try to come up with a storyline for that as well. So with Cornerstone Educational Supply, that is what we hope to do. We hope to encourage people in faith, to spur them on towards good works, to love the creator and love the creation that he has made. That's our goal. So you can find us at cornerstone-edsupply.com. We'd love to help out. And if you're a school, if you're a publisher, if you've got something that you're like, hey, we need a particular thing. We love making customized materials for folks. Well, that's awesome. Thank you, Marcus. And as a
1: customer of Cornerstone Educational Supply, and I think I have the full rock kit collection, unless maybe
2: you've released some new offerings, but they're excellent quality. Yeah. And for any of the kids out there, we actually have a Minecraft geology kit. You can find it on our website, the Minecraft kit. So for all those kids who are just gaga for Minecraft, good heavens, you can get the real rocks and blocks and ores of Minecraft. It's awesome. That is awesome. And as you were saying, We are
1: bombarded with the conventional and evolutionary interpretations of these things all the time. And it can either be unsettling, like you're saying, and we don't know what to trust, or it just kind of becomes normative. And it becomes part of the framework through which you look at rocks and fossils and the world around us. As Christians, we really want to guard against both of those. We want to be eager and open to discover and learn about the things God has made, while also being confident in the reliability and the authority of Scripture and your materials are doing a great thing in helping to promote that way of thinking. Thank you again, Dr. Ross, for being with us. If you can stick around a little longer, we'll be talking a little bit more with you in our next episode about some things more on the theological side that you've been involved in, some interesting debates. So we'll just leave that as a teaser for next time. Thank you for listening.
0: Why, Zach, that was interesting. Uh, So Give us a synopsis.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I think that what Dr. Ross was sharing is really exactly along the lines of what you and I were talking about before the interview, right? That this is a matter of history. It does connect to the gospel message. Um, yes, there's plenty of science involved, and there's plenty of good scientific evidence. Uh, Dr. Ross shared about the soft dinosaur tissue, which uh, you, we're very familiar with, and there's He gave some more detail that even I wasn't aware of about how that was discovered, that it was found almost by accident uh, by researchers that really weren't looking for it. Um, And that helps us, I think, understand, you know, why this debate, why it can seem like, oh, there's so much science on the side of evolution, the side of an ancient Earth. And just to recognize that that's where scientists are looking for. (laughs) And, And people tend to find what they look for. And right. so we That fits
0: be... their worldview. It
1: fits their worldview. And when they find something like the soft dinosaur tissue that does not fit their worldview, they don't throw out evolution. They don't throw out the ancient age of the earth. They find some way to try to hold it together. And even though, in the, as of yet, from what uh, Dr. Ross was sharing, they don't really have an explanation. They've got a couple of theories, but none of them that actually satisfy, none of them that actually makes sense of where these bones are found, of how they've been preserved. And, you yet the evidence is there, it's clear, and it fits beautifully in right. the biblical um, time frame.
0: Right, da-da-da, here comes the rescue device, right? <laughs> That's right. That's right. That's well, right. Zach, thanks for conducting that interview. That was awesome. Thank you for being here. I'm Marv Schaefer, and that was Zach Klein. This has been the Missouri Association for Creation podcast. I'd like to leave you with this. In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. See you next time.